in the context of being a teacher, uh, in the context of supporting um, students in MIC Thurlis to become teachers. We talk about, you know, we'll support you to be the teacher we think you want to be, but we'll also challenge you to be the teacher we think you need to be. Welcome to Lighting a Fire, all things teaching and learning with the Teaching Council. Welcome to the Teaching Council's Lighting a Fire podcast, the podcast where we discuss all things teaching and learning with a diversity of voices. My name is Tomás O'Rourke and I am the Director and CEO of the Teaching Council here in Ireland. I am delighted to welcome our guest for this episode and that's Finn O'Murhu. Finn O'Murhu is Head of School Post-Primary at Mary Immaculate College or MIC on their Thurless campus here in Ireland. Finn lectures across a wide range of programmes and supervises research from undergraduate to doctorate levels with a particular interest in teacher professional learning, school leadership, inclusive and collaborative practices. He is also Programme Coordinator for Postgraduate Studies in Middle Leadership and Mentoring in Primary and Post-Primary School at MIC. He previously worked as a post-primary teacher of Gaelge, History, Special Needs Education and as a Senior Inspector with the Department of Education and Skills. Now, Finn, that's obviously closer to the official bio. You and I know each other going back quite a number of years. Um, I think probably our earliest introduction to each other was in the context of instruction and leadership, uh, if I remember correctly, but our, our paths have crossed in many uh, great ways since then. We might come to that in the course of the conversation, but you'd be aware from our podcast series today, Finn, that we asked the same question of all our guests to kick off the conversation and see where the threads lead us. And that essentially is, what was school like for Finn who when you were growing up? Hi, Tomas, and thanks for the invite and the, uh, the kind opening words. Yeah, what was school like? Uh, I guess um, in, in, in one word, invisible. I was invisible. Uh, I never sensed that uh, I had, particularly at second level, that I had any particular relationship with, with, with any teachers. Certainly had lots of relationships with, with good friends, which I, I've still maintained, thankfully. Uh, I had a hugely powerful primary teacher who made an awful difference to me uh, and is still in contact with me or I'm still in contact with him. And I get the uh, the, the motivational text every now and then, um, wishing me well, and he's tracking my career and so forth. So primary school was very formative, very powerful for me, very enjoyable for the most part. I had two teachers across five years of primary school. Uh, I had one wonderful teacher and I had one less than wonderful teacher. And uh, so I had that kind of uh, mixture. Before that, I would have been, as I, I delighted in telling anybody that I visited in the presentation order, I was taught by the nuns in junior infants and senior infants. And then you progress up to the man, as it was called. So I have very fond memories of school, but I I, I always sense that especially in the post-primary, it wasn't a space where you had any meaningful relationships with, with, with teachers. That said, uh, I do recall returning to the school, looking for advice from one teacher with regard to careers and so forth. And he was incredibly helpful, extremely helpful. And uh, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't like it to be seen as uh, an overly negative statement. I think there are lots of people invisible in our schools to this day. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's probably the word that I would use at this moment in time. It, it's curious, is it not, that 
you, you, you do draw kind of a contrast between your primary and post-primary experiences, but you opted to become a post-primary teacher for all that. Yeah, why, the, the, why did you do that, given the experience you had had in both, both types of school? Because I didn't get enough points in my leaving cert to be a primary teacher tomorrow. So it was as simple ah, as that. Okay. So here I am, head of school, post-primary in, in Mary I, and they wouldn't let me in in 1983. I see. I see. Oh, I, 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 I did all the tin whistle stuff. I did all that was required, but I just didn't get enough points. So those were so, the days yeah. of the music. There was a music test. There, there was, was a music actually, test. I think the boys were spared the sewing test, but um, wow. yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a curious one. Uh, and it's the first thing I tell, tell the first years when I meet them. I tell them that story and the things happen for a reason. Uh, I was all set on being a primary teacher. Again, as you say, rightly, that that influence would, would have been very strong mm. uh, and it didn't come to pass. And curiously, that primary teacher was the person I went to as a broken hearted 18 year old realizing the dream was was shot. And there was no there was no alternatives. There was no backdoor in that sense back in the day. Of course. Yeah. And um, yeah, so um, pick yourself up and, um, you know, things happen for a reason. And I'm in the best job I could ever be in now. And I wouldn't be but for all that went before me um, in my own career. And that, yeah, that was that was uh, that was a big moment, I guess. All right. That uh, Mary, I decided to hold off 30 years before they'd let me. So <laughs> well, like, like the part of Carlsberg, worth waiting for, you know. Oh, oh, absolutely. Do you mind me asking, do you recall the conversation you had with your mentor as a disappointed 18 year old? And if you're if you do. Could you give, what did the mentor say to you or how, how did that conversation go? Uh, it, it was a very inspiring conversation. Um, Mr. Daly is, is, is the man. Um, I think anybody who knows me knows about Mr. Daly. Um, so, yeah, I remember calling up. Um, he was opening a new school at the time. So it was results come out in August, whatever. So it was around that time. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember calling. He said, come up. And I called up to the school. And it was in the evening time. It's amazing. I can I I can't remember what I did yesterday, but that was that was a that was a poignant moment certainly. And uh, I stayed with him. Must have been an hour, an hour and a half. Helped out. Did a bit of cleaning. Did a bit of tidying. Sat in a room. Had a conversation. So it was that classic male conversation of we'll talk while we do, rather than looking into each other's eyes. And it was much more comfortable. And we um, we just uh, basically ran through my options and. Um, he reminded me of who I was and that sense of being of value and being important and so on and so forth. So, look, in modern parlance, he counseled me, he guided me, uh, he reminded me of what I had to offer. And I suppose the line I'll always remember is things happen for a reason. And if you want something, it'll happen for you. So, you know, it didn't happen at that particular moment in time. And he gave me the encouragement to believe in myself, first of all, and then per pursue a career. So, yeah. Um, so like like many a young person who's disappointed with their with their uh, leaving cert results, uh, I, I got a bit of guidance and a bit of support, which was enough to, to keep me going. And uh, yeah, that's that, that's what I recall from from that evening. And it's it it always comes back when the leaving cert results come out. You know, I, I I just have that empathy for people who who didn't get maybe what they were hoping for, 
And then maybe it was the first time tomorrow that you kind of sense that, Jesus, my identity is wrapped up in something else. It's wrapped up in performance. It's wrapped up in, which, um, you know, is something I, I, I'm i conscious of ever since as a teacher as well. That, and as somebody now uh, supporting teachers to, uh, to, to keep an eye on that identity and what it means um, and uh, how important it is to understand who you are within the context of being a professional. Extraordinary, isn't it, Finn? Because you've used the word, I think, at least twice so far, relationships. And your con- the way you describe the conversation with your mentor, you know, it reminds me of the, the original etymology of assess is to sit beside, I see you, to sit with, you know, almost, okay, this has happened, this is tough. Um, but and it's really interesting and mindful of the ongoing uh, discussion on senior cycle reform here in Ireland that we so often default as teachers who are successes of the system. That's a fact. That's not a boast. That's simply that we are typically successes of the system. And that there's a, there's a lot of strength in that. But we default to talking a lot about the what, the outcome, the result. I mean, I, I, I can tell my story another time, but I, was, I, I can empathize with that sense of being fixated on this is what I want. I'm going to work my backside off to get it. And if you don't get it, it invariably happens in life. You know, no one goes through life getting everything they want or if they do, there's other problems come with that. And the heartbreak can come from that. And we don't often talk enough about those kind of magical stories of being there for someone, giving them that, that it's not that the teacher fixed the problem for you, only you could do that. And it wasn't even about fixing the problem anyway, but they were there for you in a way that you still remember to this day. And that every year when the, when those few occasions education dominates the headlines, with points and scores mm-hmm. and the, the, the students get the 9A1s or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And you're brought back to that moment. I, like, talk to me if you wouldn't mind, Finn, about that. Is that a fair read of one of your core values? In your journey as an education, you've had an incredible journey in so many ways. Mm-hmm. But the centrality of relationships and, and the relationality of education, is that kind of a, a North Star for you? Or Yeah, or, yeah. 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 It, is, it, it, it is, I guess, in the context of being a teacher, uh, in the context of supporting um, students in MIC Turles to become teachers, we talk about, you know, we'll support you to be the teacher we think you want to be, but we'll also challenge you to be the teacher we think you need to be. Um, but all along, the, that continuum is relationship. The relationship is constant. And you talk about uh, effective teachers, and we talk about when I ask first-year students to do a brainstorm, they, they use words like approachability. And that's not coming from me, that's coming from their own experience. And, and, and that whole concept then of being approachable to build a relationship, it's not a million miles away from effective leadership. I, I often find myself sometimes taking the word good, taking the word teacher out of good teacher and putting in leader instead of teacher. And, and the similarities are, are frightening sometimes. But um, to go back to, to to the piece around relationships, it's 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 the the you know the the other catchphrase that that I've heard. I don't know who who said it first, but you know I don't care what you know until I know that you care. But at the same time, the challenge around around relationships in education it's it's not enough. Relationships are vital, but it's not enough. And then you have to have subject knowledge, and then you have to have pedagogical subject knowledge, and then you have to have emotional intelligence or or a sense of understanding uh, and the ability to communicate, the ability to time management, the ability to have conversations, but also maybe the ability to recognize when not to have conversations. And 
all all of that plays out in what we might call the effective teacher. But certainly the bottom line is relationships. Um, and that would, I think, apply to, to, to all professions. Um, but I think particularly in the context of the caring profession that is, that is teaching. And within that space, then, um, I recall the, 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 the review of the, I think it was the NHS did a review and they spoke about trusting and caring cultures were the key to successful uh, institutions such as hospitals. Mm-hmm. Not the amount of money, not the amount of expertise, but the quality of trust and the cultural dynamics that took place in an institution. And that reminds me of my days in special aid when we used to say, you know, if, you, if you're striving for an inclusive classroom, then you have a better chance of succeeding if you have an inclusive staff room. So mm-hmm. it's, they're not divorced from each other. That, 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 that cultural piece in the classroom, staff room, corridor, they're not divorced from each other. Um, so, yeah, relationships are, are vital. But at the same time, we need to take advantage of those relationships to maximize the learning experience. And with that, presumably, Finn, because I'm sort of telling your story for a little bit more, but bring it on then to your journey. Nobody's interested in my story, Tomas. <laughs> oh, believe you me, if, <laughs> if there are the cases I am with your story, there'll be huge interest in this. That's why, because I had a similar conversation with Patrick Sullivan at the NCCA in terms of tone and style that he spoke quite openly of his, his youth going, going through school and, 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 the, and the lessons he's taken with him from that time. But... What your what your story reminds you of is a research a piece of research the council commissioned before my time on student teacher identity and I'm paraphrasing very crudely here but one of his overall findings was the need for student teachers to break down the, their identity that statement in particular of the teacher who we know you can be as well as the teacher you need to be so we come in with our assumptions of what is meaningful teaching and so on and I don't know about you but I think it probably holds true for the way you've told the story but for me some of the most enduring lessons I have learned in life have come from failure mm-hmm. from not getting what I wanted to get the paths I have taken which sounds strange for a teacher for t- any teacher to say never, never mind you you and be in a position of leadership in the system but I think that that holds true so given that sense of bre- breaking down identity so there was a shattering of identity certainly a shattering of expectations so what happened at the time and you've gone on this journey from school teacher to inspector in the Department of Education, work teacher education section, to position of lecturing and, and program leadership in the university, UCC, and now head of college in, a, in another uh, high quality pro- provider of teacher education in this country, MIC, Perlis Campus. Talk to us, if you would, Finn, about when that identity was, when the, when the shell was stripped back as it looks like it was, that sense of, oh my God, this lifelong dream now is no more for now. And on that journey you've gone on, how much of your identity as an educator has changed? How much has remained absolutely consistently the same? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I would say that the, the, I like what you're saying about the failure piece. Uh, we don't go looking for failure, but we do certainly learn a lot when, when it comes our way. Um, and I guess, um, ironically, uh, that, that failure piece solidified the identity piece in the sense of rather than shattering the identity, it reinforced the identity saying, yeah, I do want to be a teacher. I now realize how much I want to be a teacher, given that somebody has taken it away. <laughs> mm. So that, that was probably the outcome of that conversation with, with my mentor and, and, and good friend. I still call him Mr. Daly. I mean, he, he says, call me Jimmy, but kind of gets stuck around there. So there's, there's still a bit of reverence there. <laughs> They'll always be the teacher to you, Finn, you know. 
Exactly. Yeah. But, but that failure piece is really interesting because um, I think we, we have a job of work to do with understanding failure and risk taking uh, when it comes to, to education. Um, maybe links back to what you're saying about the NCCA piece, the leaving cert and so forth. And as, as a member of the NCCA council, I'm very conscious of that review of senior cycle and where we're going. But the, 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 the place of whatever about failure, because you could argue there's no such thing as failure, because you, 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 you learn anyway uh, and, and you benefit from it, given that you have, back to that word, the relationship with yourself or with somebody else to, to, to um, frame what's perceived as failure as, as possibly something else. But it's it's a luxury for us in the sense of you know uh, it's it's a you know it's a it's a it's a first world problem to be saying you know unfortunately I didn't get into college uh, poor old me I mean look within the scheme of things it's it, it's a minor thing but within my little scheme of things it was a major thing at the time so just to maybe put it in context mm. but the failure piece I, I think it's important um, that we begin to look at how we learn and where failure and risk-taking come, come, come into play. Uh, I think, and, and I'm looking at my own house in this regard as well, initial teacher education and that teaching perfect push, uh, be it intrinsic or extrinsic or a combination of, uh, where's that coming from? Um, mm. Where's the leading perfect piece coming from? Mm. Where's the you have to be perfect or else you're you're not a success. Um, and it's you know it's 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 a it's it's a cultural thing. It's it's an ecosystem. It's a way of living. Um, probably, um, how shall I say, exaggerated in more recent times with social media and so forth that you can only post when things are going well. Um, but I think if we're really going to be good at our job as teachers and teacher educators, we're going to have to have a really good look at the power of risk-taking, the power of being vulnerable, the power of asking the pertinent question rather than perceiving yourself as always having the right answer. Um, so, yeah, I think, um, you know, at a, at a very personal level, uh, learning opportunities come my way every day, but I would agree. I think the greatest learning opportunities are, are when assumptions are... Uh, challenged uh, and 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 when your perceived success doesn't doesn't play out the way, the way you, you, you had expected it to to be, it's curious because it, it might segue into the where we are right now in terms of what I would call the tyranny of the immediate versus the opportunity of the ocular. But arguably, the world failed in the last eighteen months, so things shut down. There was literally no movement for six months. Um, this is probably someone said to me, you know, this is never before the history of the world how 7 billion people had to stop and think and do nothing but stop and think for six months to a year to 18 months. And, and your, your description of the, the minds around is so much my own hedge dip in teaching. I was fixated on getting a high grade in teaching because I got high grades all through school. I got high points to get into college. That was my mindset. Um, and I mean, I never even failed at my driving tests going <laughs> growing up. When I got to a career failure, it was, you know, it was massively challenging, to put it mildly, because you know, the, the, the success had got success of a kind. So that given that discomfort with failure that as teachers we seem to have in our DNA, given that sense of failure in the world more broadly of a kind in the last 18 months, what do you see 
are the learn. I think it's fair to say, if, in, if I may, also that you're you're obviously a teacher at heart, and you're also a learner at heart. You're the way you're, you're whole, your whole your affection that experience. So, what is there to learn from the crisis that might be a benefit to us going forward? Mm-hmm. And I, maybe also, what is there to forget from the crisis? Because there was always that, that tyranny of the immediate. It was it was Eugene Wall actually, the, the head of MIC, who, who made that statement. And my my response to him was, "Let's not forget the opportunity of the ocular either. There are things always to be learned in these situations." So, what, what's your take on where we're at now, Finn? Given as you say, there are big questions bubbling for a long time anyway. That are in terms of the power of vulnerability, the power of asking the right question rather than the perfect answer. What what's bubbling up for you as an educator, a teacher, in this immediate post-COVID phase? Um, I, I, I guess what, what's bubbling up uh, at, at one level, yeah, um, crisis, absolutely, uh, and, and shocking fatalities and suffering and uh, a whole range of um, emotions come to mind when you cast your eye back. Um, if we can cast our eye back, I still sense we're, you know, we're, we're obviously still in this, in this space. But um, one way of... You know, I, I remember somebody saying to me once, you know, judge yourself not by the problem, but how you respond to the problem. And um, there are many aspects where we have responded heroically over the past 18 months or so, uh, my own staff included. And in witnessing that heroic response, uh, I guess I have found myself being a little bit vindicated by notions of distributed leadership, vindicated by notions that would have been theoretical maybe up to now or aspirational and saying, you know, this might actually be what it is. This is the way it's playing out at the moment. The notion of, you know, going from being a a hero leader to somebody who is dependent upon others, possibly dependent upon people they didn't expect to be dependent upon, maybe in the school context, uh, parental support, maybe came to the fore in ways that it may not have previously or may have been, um, how shall I say, may have been uh, a little bit uh, uh, avoided or or seen as not important, maybe similarly with student voice. So I think the past 18 months has opened up the conversation around, you know, how do we do what we do around here now, given what we've managed to survive? Um, and we did survive. Uh, we were all, you know, on very thin ice for, for, for many a day trying to figure out what, what was happening, what was going on, be it in schools, colleges, be it in our own homes and families. Uh, and we, we, we found ourselves asking questions that we were happy to get the answer from anywhere, uh, as opposed to maybe thinking, you know, I should have the answer uh, in the first place or I know who has the answer. And I, I think that maybe, you know, that humbling experience um, over the past 18 months where, you know, you can't really make plans, um, that you are dependent upon a range of factors, many of which are now outside of your control. I think that might have brought uh, a reimagining or at least a, a revisitation of what is it that we're trying to achieve in each other's company on a good day if this is the power of our engagement with each other on these uh, pretty horrible days, if I, if I can put it that way. Well, well inherent in all that you're saying, I, I would think, Finn, is the idea of relationality, the relationality yeah. of education. And that was really almost no more than when you said earlier on, by, by your dream being taken from you, 
your belief in your dream was actually reinforced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Similarly, by the means of the connections being severed, our, our appreciation of those connections was actually reinforced. Mm-hmm. And our school place innovation report, to which your institution and others contributed earlier on in the summer, and we publicly launched in September, has a very powerful example and narrative of student teachers actually becoming mini, whatever middle leaders, mini leaders in their own right, by actually teaching their more experienced colleagues about the use of the platforms to support yeah. remote teaching and learning. So if that's one emerging trend, this is what, what I would call, I haven't seen many authors refer to it, but there are one set of authors called the altrocentric approach to leadership, whereby there is a nominal titular leader, there's a principal, deputy principal, there's A post, B post, so on and so forth. But actually, everyone has to step in and out of a space, depending on the need, depending on your, you're trying to grow your team, et cetera. And there is no fixed formula for that, hence altrocentric. If that's what's emerging, I, I think you've got some thoughts, because we're discussing this in the, in the prep for this, Finn. The pillars of the continuum are well and truly in place now. We've got came for initial teacher education. We've got Thrid for induction. And we've cussed on for uh, lifelong learning, career-long learning, depending on what perspective people take on it. But there is a human reality in the gaps between those pillars. So it's lovely to be talking policy terms that a pillar is there, there's three pillars, and it sounds great, it's a lovely metaphor. But there's a human reality to be lived and enacted where arguably you and other teacher educators can play, are playing, I will continue to play a pivotal role in helping teachers navigate their journey in those gaps. Mm. What, where, how do you see that journey, uh, journey unfolding? How, how would you like to see it unfold? Given, as you said, the questions that are popping, have been popping for some time, teacher education, given that there seems to be, we've certainly been shown the need for more and better conversations between student teachers and teachers, teachers and parents and, and the wider community and so on. But we don't necessarily seem to have the space for those uh, as things stand. So there's a lot of stuff I'm throwing at you there, but you want to respond? No, no, to no. Yeah. This is all the stuff we prepped tomorrow, so I've got all the answers. <laughs> <laughs> you better get through it, so keep going, Finn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we're coming to the end of all the questions you were going to ask me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, no, th- thanks, Tomas. Um, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even at failed, I was listening to one of our own students uh, on the panel, and he was talking, really what he was talking about was the, 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 the much more democratic relationship he as a student teacher was having in his final year placement both with the cooperating teacher, but also with the placement tutor, uh, because the placement tutor was also knocked out of their stride by the, 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 the previous uh, 18 months. So in that context, that notion of Jim Spillane might speak in distributed leadership terms. Somebody else might say that the democratization of, 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 of uh, learning to teach um, and identity comes back into it again because we were we were knocked out of kilter and um, we ended up asking students tell us what to do as opposed to this is what you must do or at least tell us what you're doing so that we can have an understanding of the context in which you're operating and so on and so forth. So absolutely, it, it, it did broaden my mind around the whole notion of how much leadership can we instill in initial teacher education space, how much can we develop without overburdening? Because the last thing you want to do is to go into that kind of social justice rant of here's what you should be doing because every other generation has not done it. I, I, I don't subscribe to that. I don't think it's fair uh, on, on young teachers to be saying that to them. But the reality of, of change is it happens through conversations and shared actions. 
And more often than not, it will not happen at a meeting. More often than not, it will not happen at an event. It'll happen in the day-to-day mundaneness of of interacting with one another. And um, I think the more I understand the concept of effective teaching and effective leadership, the more I'm recognizing the the, the poetry and the prose, the poetry in in in, in the in the day to day, and um, that's something that we can give our initial teacher educators. We can give them a sense of um, they have a power, they have a role, um, while at the same time not overburdening them with that role. But I I I, I sense part of it can come from. The, the work within CAME, which is promoting a collaborative piece, which again brings me back to, as you said yourself, Tomas, you know, I want to be perfect. I want to be the best. There's, there's a tension there. At one level, we're saying collaborate. At another level, we're saying, you know, there's a competition going on here. Uh, and the same applies in middle leadership. I mean, you, you know, you, you have people applying for posts. Some get them, some don't, you know. Uh, I mean... My only, my only, my, not my only setback was was uh, at leaving cert level. I remember applying for to, for for posts of responsibility uh, in schools, A posts and B posts, as they were back in the day. And it was one thing to be disappointed and not getting it, and it was another thing to be disappointed upon hearing who did get it. And that's the other cultural piece that you have to navigate and operate, and you have to pick yourself up and say, well, were you doing it for the position, or were you doing it for your students? So doesn't this speak though? Lots of jotting down there, but if you if we were to understand leadership as being about the titular roles, the A post, the B post, and so forth, then disappointment is inevitable because at some point you were on the road. Yeah. You, 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 yeah. you might take a different turn. Yeah. But given the pressures that you know, there's a couple of volcanoes popped during COVID. Let's be let's, let's be mm-hmm. honest; they're a matter of public record in terms of controversies and tensions in the system. Yeah. yeah. And ultimately, as I listen to you. Professional leadership should be about the most practical and relevant of, of, of endeavors. In other words, you have teachers out there who really want to do their best to teach the children in front of them. They have heightened parental expectations, particularly in the inclusive education space. And a lot of, a lot of this gets lost in a, a highly emotive space mm. of, I want this on their way. I'm a professional. I know what I'm doing and, 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 and what ensues from that. So whereas if leadership, I think you have certainly tried to teach it, Finn, certainly as, I, as, as far as I know your, your, your approach and your practice, is about drawing forth from whatever source, could be yourself, could be your peers, bringing together to do what you've always wanted to do, mm. teach kids, mm. teach children, young people, adult learners. That, that tension is still there, perhaps, is it not? And how, how what we, that's, that's the gap between your recognition of completion and induction. Whatever means of recognition of learning would happen in Kusan, that's still being worked out. And, and, and there's lots of ideas out there, digital badges and so on, yeah. that are kicking around the space. But, but strip all that back, and you are, you are a teacher in a school, teachers in a school, probably in the collaborative space, and you have real kids with real needs of varying degrees of complexity and acuteness, mm-hmm. and you're trying to do your best. Mm-hmm. And and that leadership piece, therefore, that I mean, beyond ITE, you've you you've got the growing postgraduate space in terms of middle leadership as well. So, talk us a bit more about that middle middle space, that postgraduate space, mm-hmm. that working with teachers in the lowercase but well intentioned L of leadership. Yeah, and that yeah. sense of professional learning. Yeah. Uh, well, l- listening to you earlier, Tomas, I was reminded of um, Aideen McGovern, Doctor Aideen McGovern, Navin Education Centre. 
And she shared an image one day when we were talking about middle leadership, which was uh, starlings and the murmuration. And I've kind of run with that a little bit in my own teaching as well around middle leadership. And, you know, we can have, you know, I don't know if, if you remember spot the ball when there was no ball in the oh, yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> And maybe there's an element of um, spot, <laughs> spot the leader when it comes to murmurations or spot the leaders, um, depending. Um, and I'm reminded of Helen Timberley's work around uh, adaptive expertise, which is what I see murmurations as, you know. I'm not quite sure what they're up to. There's a few theories around what they're doing. But whatever they're up to, they're doing it very well as far as I'm concerned uh, and, and spectacularly so. So in the context of, of, of school, I, I, I would come back to, as you say, take. I think there's huge power in narrative and story in, in, in our culture. And I think we can push. You know, theoretically, we can talk about case study, but really we're talking about stories and I think the more stories we have, which is why I, I, I love supporting FAILTA as well, is that it gets at the underbelly of all the structures and the frameworks and everything else. And it says, look, here's a story. And can we can we use the framework to capture the magic of the story? Probably not, but we can show the framework is capturing certain principles around that magic. And that's why we do need frameworks and we do need structures, but we also realize they're not enough. Uh, in my inspectorate days, I would have said repeatedly, there are certain non-negotiable conversations around child protection, around the hours a child is entitled to, et cetera, et cetera. But all bets are off when it comes to the context of pedagogy, because it's about the learner in front of you. I, as a visiting inspector, do not know that learner. But if you don't know who that learner is when I ask that question, then maybe we do have to have a conversation but the, the the piece around it is the is the conversation is it's going back to the narrative is the power of the narrative to capture the stories of success semi successes failures etc and again that risk taking i think is, is 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 very important when we talk about middle leadership we're talking about people taking risks first of all they're putting their hand up if it's a titular positional post we all know that there are leaders who are not in, in, in formal positions, but they are leaders. And many of them go on to um, obtain or, or seek uh, positional posts, but many don't. And one of the curious things, Tomas, we've discovered with, with, with our middle leadership conversation is our program is middle leadership and mentoring. Now, we, we've, we've gone through gymnastics around what the title of our program should be. Are we losing potentially senior leaders who might see this as part of when in fact it is, or should we have the tag of mentoring included or not? And, 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 and mentoring for many is the draw. Many of them want to stay teaching, but they want to know more about mentoring. And that's, that's not to take from Drihid, it's not to take yeah. from all the other work, because it's also about mentoring your established colleague which is a subtle difference to mentoring a newly qualified teacher or a student teacher. And that, that space, I think, is really rich for development. And look, I, I can't think of any other profession that I would rather be working with than teachers. 12 years, I was a department inspector and people said, you know, what's it like? And I said, well, you know, I would suggest as professions go, 
it's the most enriching place you can be to have a conversation about your specific profession. Um, and, and I would still hold to that. And that's not meant to be patronizing to the profession. It's just, it's a fact. Um, I don't know of any teacher who doesn't want to be a good teacher. I've met very few, but I have met a few who weren't very good at what they were doing. But it wasn't because they had to be around it. It's, um, no. So um, I, I think there's a huge sleeping giant in that middle leadership space, but it's contingent. It's contingent on a whole range of things, including senior leadership, mm. because it, it, you can have a bit of lip service around distributed leadership, but if you're still in a in a, a you know um, an autocratic frame of mind, it can it can be pretty hard to uh, to sense as as a middle leader, be it formal position or otherwise, that you actually have a legitimate space to uh to to show your leadership in so it, it is contingent upon senior leadership it's contingent upon the culture within the staff are you are, are you allowed some people some people will apply for courses like ours without telling colleagues mm. for fear of ridicule for fear of you know as we say being accused of having notions in the being, being being the nerd in the class yeah, and 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 you know, all 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 of that needs to be um, needs to be teased out and discussed. And 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 if we're serious about which we are, I know we are. We're serious about promoting middle leadership. Um, then then we have to have a look at it more in the round. I mean, for example, you could argue that senior leaders should be studying middle leadership, not aspirational senior leaders studying middle leadership only. I, how do I get the best out of my middle leadership space? Um, there, there, there's, there's a lot in that, and uh, again, it's back to relationships and it's back to identity. There's, there's, there's that word again. Like, I mean, it's. I think what you're describing earlier on, and I'll go back to our space in a second. But I'm a one-trick pony. You see? No, no, no. You're more. I'm trying to say you're more than that. <laughs> but um, we all discovered moments of relationality mm. in the in the pandemic. Moments where we were really reminded, God. Relationships are absolutely fundamental. They, it, like, like, like the iceberg or like the rock front of the water, it was always there, but became quite, quite visible. And I've said in your summer school, we must not lose those moments. Mm. Uh, we must, we, we can't fall back into the old assumed ways of doing things because we reminded far too starkly so much rests on the connection between people, not just between teachers. And even though that's in itself a, a growing phenomenon, collaboration amongst professionals, but I reminded the father, for example, of a young man uh, turning 18 with autism who was about to finish a special school uh, in the southwest of the country and he spoke very moving in a webinar of ours of how contrary to his expectations he found himself and his son 17 18 walk in the back garden learning things and you're getting support from the school via remote means and so on to to, to do that and as you speak in particular about the, the start as a powerful metaphor the murmuration of starlings i remind of a former colleague of mine brendan od i was doing a keynote address some years ago and I showed him a draft of it. And in commenting on the draft, he talked about uh, he'd be a big rugby fan. And he said, you'll always notice the most in the media commentary in the rugby team, particularly the Irish one, they'll comment on the presence or absence of leaders. So there's the titular captain, whoever it might be, it could be sex, whoever it is at a given point in time. But there's a, and they're not, there are, I mean, I'm not aware, I could be wrong on this, but any, you know, A post, B post occurrence in rugby, but there are clearly identified players who are acknowledged as leaders in the team, who obviously work with the captain, work with each other. And if they're missing, it shows the performance of the team overall. It, and it's very, there's no scientific formula for it, but it clearly really matters. So that, and I, that's why I think I'm very interested with what you're saying, that one of the biggest draws for your offer middle leadership is not the middle leadership piece, it's the mentoring. 
Mm-hmm. It's almost like, you know, we've, in, in the innovation space, the public sector, we talk about if you want to promote innovation, the last thing you should talk about is innovation because people assume it's not, they're not doing it, which very often they are. It's a highfalutin concept where actually, if you, as we've discovered in the teaching council, if you actually get staff to share what they're doing, a la failure, and you say, oh, by the way, that's innovation. Oh, nobody told me. Mm-hmm. So they, they, I think the, the responsibility on systems leaders, there's a couple of conversations with Kira O'Donnell as well in the podcast series, Finn. I think you could arguably be described as a systems leader. I probably would be as well. And given as you say that middle leadership is contingent on so many other factors, which is self-agency and self-efficacy, but also the senior leader's view and the system, the, spa- the, the degree to which the systems leaders create space and time for leadership to be explored. Because your point about the senior leaders, whether they stood it formally or otherwise, but to show an appreciation of the vulnerability that goes with leadership. We don't have all the answers. That you, you, if you follow the ultra-centric model, you're going, you're, you're flitting in and out of middle leadership and senior leadership. If you follow that model, and it's only a model. To what extent are we doing that effectively as a system currently, creating that space and time for leadership to be explored? And if, as I suspect, there is more we could be doing, what more should we be doing? Um, I, I, I'll start the answer tomorrow by going back to acknowledge. There's an awful lot of good work going on that people may not be able to describe or may describe in ways that don't line up with systems language for describing it. Um, And I think that we are reminded then of that sense of being a professional, uh, of maybe we don't give ourselves enough credit enough of the time. You mentioned the volcanoes that erupted over the, the past 18 months, and they did. I, I think in part some of that, and again, look, it's, 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 it's one person's opinion. I think in part that could have been viewed differently if we had a different understanding of what it means to be a professional. Um, I think there, are, there is a tension. There is always a tension in education between the external and the internal. Um, there's a tension at teacher level between other voices and your own voice. There's a tension at school level between, we'll say, uh, concepts like school self-evaluation and school improvement as set against external inspections. And that that tension and and that talking to each other around that um, plays out in in, in many ways. Looking at our school, uh, to go back to your question, is looking at our school an invitation or an imposition? And who decides? And, and, And then all of a sudden we're back to a conversation about leadership. Uh, from my perspective, the equivalent of looking at our schools for us right now, Tomas, is came, is came an invitation or an imposition. It's about standards. For me, it's an invitation. For us in Thurlis, it's a self-review for starters. How are we doing as set against these standards? Where are we surpassing? Where do we need to step up? And, and everything that goes with that. But for that to happen, you're back to our earlier conversation about are you comfortable with the right questions being asked? It's not just the question is, is it the right question in the sense of that leadership space, that vulnerability space, that 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 opportunity to say, look, it doesn't matter if we need to improve. What matters is that we've agreed we need to improve. So let's go and improve. You know, it's not back to, you know, earlier conversations. It's the eco, not the ego system. It's, it's about what's best for, for, for our students. And that's something that teachers are, are very powerful at. Teachers will do anything once they are clear it's a benefit to their students. Many people think teachers object 
to events because they, they, they're selfish or they have some other ulterior motive. My experience of teachers is that teachers can be quite reticent about lots of things, but they can be quite reticent for lots of good reasons. And, and the key one is how does this impact upon my students? How does it impact on their learning, on their learning experience, etc.? Like, you know, years ago, we used to be, when we were kicking off with team teaching and you'd meet teachers who were reticent, but some of them had very good reason for being reticent because they were saying, this isn't going to work. This, you know, I need to find out more about this because I want to protect my students. I want to protect my time with my students. I want to, and um, so I, I think there's something in our profession that we we could push a little bit more, which is that professionalism around looking out for our students all students. And yeah, we have improved on the inclusion journey. We have a long way to go. We have a lot to do on that adaptive practice. We have a lot to do on understanding good teaching is good teaching, that there's not a separate space out here, a separate universe, um, which in many ways is an analogy for what we were talking about earlier in that, you know, all the policy items that come in their separate and, and, and very important policy items that come in their separate baskets, they play out in the blink of an eye in a staff room or in a classroom. And the decision-making and the work teachers do uh, and the speed at which they have to operate, I think is something that maybe the policy piece could have a look at more closely. I guess I'm drifting into the, the work with Barry Bennett around understanding change, not just understanding what needs to change, but understanding change itself. Um, and some of the complaints of late would have been around the not so much what's being asked, but the rapidity, speed and, and frequency of what's being asked. Yeah, that hmm. there's understanding change and there's also there's the, 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 the current reality, probably most we argue, including ourselves, is that there's people who feel they don't have the luxury of time to understand change. They simply have to enact it. Mm-hmm. I come up with a conversation with Patrick Sullivan, this kind of this pressure of, you know, you, you because of the live real life situation of 30 children as opposed to one patient in front and so on, we teachers become so good at enfolding any changes in practice into their practice, they forget, no one else notices, actually, this was a change all along but, but, because it becomes such a seamless part. It yeah. has to so quickly. So in that sense, that thing of, of adaptive practice, and we, we, we speak in our forthcoming strategic plan, the Teaching Council, about professional responsiveness, that there is unquestionably the need as a standards body for you know, minimum levels of qualification to become a member of the profession in the first place. But when you come into the uh, Cusson space, the, 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 experience, you know, the lifelong learning space, the complexity of need the acuteness of need and this can back to your point this the the sh- the, repi- the rapid shifting of need you know the, the priorities and so on i mean the qualifications are, are an important but one part of the picture mm-hmm. the extent to which we're trying to foster mindsets and you know new space in which teachers can actually you know become more responsive and have to study like that you know the, stu- the teachers are focused very much on the needs of students and rightly so they are the, the primary focus if you pardon the educational pun but there's also the parental angle. And you've been involved in discussions, Finn, with the National Parents Council primary in terms of the whole, you, you, I think you're one of the, the, the institutions of the country who are doing some pioneer work in the space of collaboration with the NPC primary to um, educate your student teachers. And that still doesn't answer my question because that's great. That's an important step forward. It is a requirement under the standards anyway, invitation or position to, we, we, we could have to discuss that one. But once they complete that module or once they complete a mm-hmm. postgraduate qualification, 
that need and that space and time for teachers, parents and students to begin to break down their mutual assumptions. What more could we as a system, and you're at the HEI space, we're the professional regulatory bodies, the MPC primary, is there more we could be doing in that space to, to, I think, support professional learning, not as an additional piece, but as part of a more dynamic flow? Yeah, yeah, I, absolutely. I, th- I think the dynamic flow, again, you could, without boring listeners, is, is, is that relationship piece again. But you could, you could push the, the point around the preparation of initial teacher education as, yes, it's the beginning of the conversation. Absolutely. There are non-negotiables, but there are also an understanding that not everything can be achieved. Just as society tries to say, well, schools should be doing this, you know, everything from, you know, uh, learning to drive a car to how to treat, treat each other um, in, in a fair and, and an equitable manner. And I think where 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 we could go, you see that the, the 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 professionalism as I see it going forward is is back to that line about it's not what you do, it's what you do with others that counts. And what you do with others can be parents, can be fellow teachers, can be fellow students, teachers, can be school leaders can be the inspectorate, can be the, the, the local uh, CINO, NEP psychologist, the list goes on. So in a sense, the, the, the work that we're doing, while ostensibly it's around working with, as opposed to the pejorative dealing with parents, but the skill set that's being developed is a skill set that is generic and transferable across working with any other adults that you meet be it an SNA, be it a parent, be it a teacher, and the list goes on. Um, so I think there the adaptive piece comes back into the conversation that you 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 receive the beginning of a skill set, you receive the message of the importance of that skill set, but you also receive an understanding that this will develop and evolve over time, and your repertoire with those skills will develop over time as well. But the piece about the repertoire of skills is you then have to work in a culture that supports you with the decision making around which skill you're going to use at which time and why. And and that's the cultural piece. And that's why, with respect to initial teacher education, DRIHID and um, COSON, rather than it being linear, I think it has to be much more cyclical. Because the minute I'm in Kosan, I might be working with initial teacher education. The minute I'm in Drihid, I might be working in Kosan. And, and that's that's the life story. That's what happened today in, in school. That's the way it played out. I, I, I can recall being a, a school mentor myself back in the day. And, and you know, there's no, you, yes, absolutely, you have to have policy and you have to have structure and you have to have itemization. But sometimes... When we disaggregate, we lose the score. We 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 miss out on you know the 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 total being greater than the sum of the parts. Yes, we have to identify the parts. We have to identify initial teacher education, dread, on. But now we have to go and look at how do they play off each other. And I'm not saying we don't look at it, but I think that is worth chasing in the context of, for example, working with. The National Parents Council on in, in enhancing your your collaborative skills for working with others, so that you're 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 chasing certain key principles. Came talks about you know graduate outcomes, um, and 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 I think that's a very good place to go. 
But the next piece I would suggest is how does came fold into Cosson? How does Cosson fold into Drihid? And, and maybe we're back to life stories. Maybe we're back to, to, to people telling their experiences. Um, Jim Spillane does a lovely, simple exercise where he, he tracked, in this case, he was tracking principles to see what they did. Days of their lives is, is the paper, and I know you're well aware of it. And in that context, he just stopped them in their tracks and literally sent them a text saying, what are you doing right now? And they replied back. And the amount of co-performance and the amount of them not leading, especially around instruction, especially around teaching, learning and assessment. And that brings us back into the middle leadership space, I would suggest, because the middle ground there is literally the middle ground, because whatever about primary with 55, 60% of teaching principles, you don't have any anything like that at post-primary level. Principles very rarely teach, unless they're wise enough to take a class, because it actually gives them a bit of space and a bit of, a bit of cred, but quite a lot are not in a position to do so. So from that perspective, that, that middle ground that is occupied by teachers, and especially those who have additional roles and responsibilities above and beyond their teaching, I think is a very rich and fertile space. And it also opens up the opportunity to maybe um, not saying that school leadership isn't attractive, but to make it more attractive. We are aware of concerns, be it IPPN or NNPE, mm. around sustain, sustained leadership and sustaining leaders. and. Um, well, I, a, that is an important distinction, is it not, given the whole discussion of the titular role versus the lived reality of leadership and, and all the, I think, untapped potential agency there is amongst teachers, if you can somehow, we can reconfigure the space and time in which the, the work happens. There is an, an implicit invitation, whether to Irish, because we're in the last 10 minutes here at the stage, Finn, of your commentary about the Jim Spillane exercise, because you remember talking about that, actually, I think it was an NCCA leading out seminar, uh, one of the ones in the series so far. That if one thing any teacher or indeed parent or indeed student listening to this podcast could do right now would be to try and capture some of the stories while they're fresh in their head of their moments of relationality during the pandemic. If, if we're all, if we're not going to lose those moments, the only ones that can save them are each other. In other words, it can't be just down to you or me. It's down to every leader, capital L or otherwise, saying, well, in the last 18 months, what did I learn about myself as a professional or a parent or a student about the learning experience? Warts and all, so that as I think the, the worst thing you could do is rush to solutions now and try and impose certain strictures, because I think that tier of the immediate do, is always there. And the ocular is probably best uh, viewed through a distance, from a distance. Um, so th that I, I like that idea of, of James Balan's exercise and that idea of the reflective practice inherent in it. You almost capture your thoughts now, mm. a bit like the journaling process or even reflective practice mm. and the Tashka that's now part of Came as well as Threadhead. But you come back to them time and again. I often made the mistake growing up. I'm not sure what, what kind of a reader you are. I didn't read many bo books twice until, the, until the, the coach of a friend said, I was facing a particular challenge at one point in my life, and they said, what was your favourite book growing up? And I said, Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula Le Guin, the trilogy. Go read it again. And I said, really? So it, it, as a while I'm on that, because we're in the last nine minutes now, Finn, are you an avid reader? What do you like reading for pleasure? Yeah, I am. I'm just smiling. I I just love to finish a book I'm I'm reading as opposed as opposed to reread read a book I've read. But uh, yeah, uh, I I have I I have I have a kind of a a a, 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 a leaning tower of Pisa stack of books mm. that mm. um that wobble every now and then. But um, 
The, the, the funny, I'll, I'll tell you a funny one in relation to our conversation today. I'm a, I'm a member of a book club, would you believe? Um, and I am the youngest by, I think, about six years. And then after that, so I'm, I'm 56. The next guy up is 60, 61. And then everybody else after that is 70 plus. Right. They're all, they're all in some way related to education. All of them are retired. Um, but they all have a foot in education and they all certainly have a foot in sport and they've all been successful sports people, except me. So with it, with it, within, I'm still trying to figure out how, how I'm in the book club. I think it's got something to do that we meet every six weeks. Uh, we, we, we'll have a pint or two, we'll have a meal and we'll discuss a book and we'll mm-hmm. choose another book and we'll come mm-hmm. back six weeks later. Mm-hmm. But here, here's the rub. It's, the book has to be sport. It can only be a sports book. Oh. Okay, but when you go a little bit deeper, the sports book always, always is about emotions. The sport isn't the issue; it's always about emotions. You you mentioned uh, your good friend Brendan O'Dea and rugby leadership. Yeah. Um, the book I'm read that I just finished uh, was a book called um, "The Game" by Ken Dryden, who was an ice hockey player. Won't, won't delay you now with the story, but basically a very successful ice hockey player, won the equivalent of uh, eight or, or five All-Ireland Stanley Cups in, in the 70s with the Montreal Canadiens, went on to be a successful businessman, politician, etc., etc. But right in the middle of that book, and I've used it with my students last week, he doesn't use the phrase adaptive practice, but he is talking about adaptive practice. And what he talks about is intuition on, on the rink. When a player does something spectacular without thinking, and his question is, how did we get to that point? And his argument is, if you coach and only coach young people, you will never get to that point. And he raised, he raised an interesting argument where he says, you need your coaching, but you need your time alone. He said, you need collaboration, but to be creative, you need to have space on your own. Back to failure, back to failure. You need to be allowed to fail. You need to be allowed to try the wrong things. You need to be allowed to try the right things until you're able to do them. So that what he ended up talking about, Tomas, instead of adaptive practice, he spoke about reinvent the game. You play the game, but to be superior than anybody else, you have to reinvent it in the game. bit like reflection in practice, but more to the point, it's action in practice. Practice. Yeah, there's, there's two, and then we've only got sixes at this stage, but I had a conversation with Andy Hargreaves when he was over for Failure two years ago. And I put to him a similar type of scenario, but I said, it seemed to me, and I'm not a sports expert at all, my, my family will testify that very amply, was that I, I think sports have been far better than education at making progressive leaps in performance over the decades. Look mm-hmm. at, you know, gap players, stature, physicality, strength, skill, and all the rest. What Visible differences between what they are now and what they were 30, 40 years ago. But Brendan Cropley from the University of South Wales was a speaker at the Cousin event last week. Yeah, yeah. And I think we got to in the conversation live on air, but in the prep, he actually told us, no, sport is pretty much the same space as education. For every Man United, there are 20 other teams in the doldrums floundering because they have not got access to the insights from research, our access to the kind of coaches that other teams have. There's a whole wealth issue there, obviously, and, and finance and whatnot. Given that state of affairs, that was quite a learn, learning point for me. I would have assumed otherwise, but clearly was, 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 was wrong. 
Talk to me in the last few minutes, Finn, given your progressive journey of learning, your pursuit of postgraduate study, your offering a postgraduate study, but what can we do best next to address that gap? So if there's a gap between research policy and practice, mm. we're not short of ideas, we're certainly not short of solutions, but we don't seem very effective, and we don't seem to be alone in this, unfortunately, in education, at sharing the ideas systemically. So that all teachers and all students genuinely benefit from them. That it becomes more than a pipe dream, more than a, a nirvana that we're pursuing. I would have thought you're particularly well placed, given the journey you've been on yourself, mm -hmm. to think, what can we do best next to begin to address that gap? Yeah, well, I, first of all, I think there's always going to be a gap. Uh, and the question is, 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 is the gap an issue if students are learning? I don't think it is. Now, if you're chasing student learning, my understanding of policy over the years, uh, and you know, I, 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 have, I have two things, at the very least, I have two things to apologize to, 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 to everybody. When it was teaching, I never understood uh, at times the, um, the degree of, of, of pressure, I guess, that, that young people can be under. Um, I would have started my career very much exam-focused results, going back to our sporting analogy. And it's only over time I've realized that, you know, it's about the life chance, improving the, the, the learning and life chances of young people. And, 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 and I think the, the, the point I'm trying to make here is the policy piece, a lot of policy comes from good practice, not the other way around. So is there a policy practice gap in reverse? Is there more good practice going on than policy is capturing? As opposed to this feeling of, why can't we just get teachers to do what we want them to do? I think it, you know, I think it could be flipped on its head and say, well, why can't mm -hmm. we capture all that teachers do and honor it and recognize it in, 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 in policy? You can see what's happening with COVID. You can, you can see the amount of people that are now running with their pre-COVID agendas again to explain what COVID was so that their agenda now fits into what the future will be. Um, and sometimes, you know, policy and research can do that. The, the, the agenda may not be actually what the practitioner is engaged in per se. Mm -hmm. So I, I would like, again, it's the invitation to the profession to... Um, have that stronger voice. Tomas, that's why I respect what you do. That's what you're trying to do. That's what teaching council is trying to do. Not always recognized by everybody, but you're trying to honor the teacher voice, give it the space. It's not failed. It's not cuss on. It's every day. It's everything that the teaching council does. And I think that's that that's one space that we can go to. Like if if you look at it in in, in the modern world, it kind of reminds me of you know the church and you know going to mass when when you weren't able to read. It might have made sense to have somebody explain the sermon to you because you you, you were illiterate. We're now in a different space. We're in a different space when it comes to learning as teachers. What is the, what is the next way of supporting teachers to learn? Is it still going to be the same? as it currently is, or is there a move towards what we might call, again, in, 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 in clerical terms, subsidiarity, that notion of working at the lowest possible level with each other, trust one another to succeed at that level, rather than requiring an imposition external or whatever from somebody else to make sure that you're doing what's required. 
mean, there is, there is a paradox in saying this is what we should do as set against a child-centered curriculum. Mm. There is a paradox in I want you to engage in school self-evaluation and here's how. There is a paradox, whatever about a gap, there is a paradox. And some of those tensions, I think, I would like to think that the teaching profession would be emboldened by the past 18 months to say, hang on a minute, we're actually the ones that got us through this. Yes. Yeah, notwithstanding some of the, the rather less than savory moments that we had. Mm-hmm. But where are we now? Are we going to drift back to being told what to do as set against having something to say about uh, our particular context? You, you, you spoke. I'm going to wrap up with these comments, Finn, because yeah, I'm going to get in big trouble after this. I know. Yeah, we're in the middle of a conversation that we probably can come back to, but you opened your answer by referring, if I remember correctly, to the gap not necessarily being a problem. And you know that they have way time in questioning, you know, and are, are, are in distinct unease with silence, you know, it, as human beings, never mind teachers, you know, it's like, oh my God, the, the, what would happen in, in the silence? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's almost as if, from my perspective, certainly from the teaching house perspective, our journey has been one of becoming more and more comfortable with, okay, if you step back, like in the Beacons process that you're involved with, and allow people to start leading the conversation with no predetermined agenda, the, the, the scales literally fall from people's eyes and they realize there's so much more in common than they ever thought possible. Like the, like the teacher in Canada on an OEC webinar when he was asked what, what was some of his biggest learnings from COVID, number one, he said, people in the system at every level should stop making assumptions of each other. We do that far too often. That's, so I, I like the idea of the gap, but what I think is really interesting, and, and it, 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 if we're going to finish here, it's not a bad point because you spoke very openly and honestly about the sense of invisibility in school when you were a student in post-primary. But by talking about the capturing of practice and mentioning failed children like that as examples, it's a wonderful sense of progression of making the implicit explicit, mm-hmm. making the invisible visible. There is so so that and if that's one one takeaway we can take away mm-hmm. from your thoughts. I think it's a really empowering one because I think that speaks to the idea of trust, trusting ourselves to be able to cope with the unknown because. There's so much latent potential out there that if we just simply scratch beneath the surface, we will find what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe it'll find us actually in the process mm-hmm. too. So Finn, uh, as I said, hopefully this is the, the only, the first of many conversations. Well, it's not the first, obviously, between you and me, but uh, the first of many in public, perhaps, shall we say, we'll begin to unearth our thoughts a bit more um, because there's, there's so many other areas we didn't get to actually because we followed and the conversation so much. But I do want to thank you so much for, like other guests in this series, it's, it's quite remarkable but it's really also it's a great modeling of that idea of the vulnerability of professionals and the vulnerability of leadership to tell a poignant story that clearly has such an impact on you and i think paved the way in so many ways both for this conversation for for your life as a whole and i want to thank you for that for sharing your thoughts so generously you've shared with me very generously over time but for sharing with the wider audience i thank you for that as well um i want to thank all our listeners for tuning into the podcast continue to do so from around the world australia us uk uh, I, I see that, that you're tuning into it to our to our thoughts. I hope there are some interest and help to you. We'd love to hear back from you of your own thoughts and questions in response to the same. As always, if you've enjoyed this episode, please share the link with your friends and colleagues and family. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast in the usual way. You can find us on all major podcast channels. If you have any comments or thoughts on this episode, you can find us on Twitter at Teaching Council. That's all one word, at Teaching Council. Or email us directly at communications at teachingcouncil.ie. It's our in Thank you all for listening.